Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 28, Ian Lampert. Ian, welcome in. Nice to have you here. Hey, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, Hey, man, I say welcome here, but of course, we're not here. We still got some coronavirus leftovers that are happening, so we're not in the same room, unfortunately, but I'm really happy to have you on the show. I'm really uh, excited to pick your brain. Uh, Of of all the people in forensics that I know of, your brain is one that uh, I love getting into because we've talked a few times and and I've been impressed with your thoughts on forensics a lot, And, uh, and I'm really happy to have you here to to get to the bottom of that. So um, I guess I should begin by just asking you about your background. Like, how did you begin in speech? Sure. As uh, about halfway through high school, a friend of mine at Cleveland High in Reseda said that I needed a partner for parliamentary debate. I was happy to jump into it. I was terrible at it. Our first parliamentary <laughs> debate tournament, there were three rounds. We won one of them by default because the judge intervened against our opponents and said they were non-topical on our behalf. I thought they were perfectly topical. We lost <laughs> another round because we kept the wrong side. And we lost the third round because our opponents were significantly better to the point that our judge on the ballot, and I remember this, wrote something like, the affirmation repeated their arguments ad nauseum. And once I looked up the Latin, I realized, oh, he really was disgusted by our <laughs> round. So I did not and, take the parley as a natural. Uh, I had better luck in It's improv- so funny how, how insults on ballots wind up becoming, like, you'll never forget that term ad nauseum for the rest of your life. That now has become a, uh, you know, that phrase is stuck in your brain. And you know when to use it now. <laughs> no, I think about it ad nauseum. <laughs> So you're you're doing debate, and this is what your junior year in high school. Yeah, just about. And and I just want to backtrack a little bit. You said a friend asked you to get involved because they needed a partner. Had you you've never really you'd never done any debate? Did you get any sort of training before you went into your first tournament? Like what was that? What was that like? No, I mean, with all respect to our senior leadership, and they were very good, spontaneous speakers. They were state qualified. But I think that they were busy being seniors in high school, so they tried to make up for it at the competition. They were there before the round giving a bunch of advice, but it was so much advice that I literally didn't know what to do with it. It was really no. one ear at the other. Like I, It was not all that helpful in the moment, and uh, you know, I won't – I've tried to make a habit, at least in recorded seminars, not, not to speak ill of anyone, so I'll just say that there could have been more institutional support for our team. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I mean, I think we've all kind of been thrown into the deep end a few times. And I, I think if nothing else, not to speak ill about any one specific person, it's always a lesson for us as educators to remember, like too much information can actually be harmful. You know, sometimes it's better just to be like, look, let's just get one or two things down because that's going to be your best bet moving forward. You know, as opposed to let me teach you everything there is to know about debate in 57 seconds. Right. I mean, I think that I got more training in an event that I eventually took to a bit more effectively. That's impromptu speaking. The issue is I was like very bad at impromptu on a conceptual level the first times I approached it. I got the topic tomato and I was told they have to make a metaphor. I have to find an interpretation. And I was like, OK, tomato, tomato, tomato is red, red. Love is red. 
anger is red, war is red. <laughs> Aztecs had no, they don't anything that. And like I went on for thirty something seconds, and then I made an off kilter reference. I was like, "Look, we have to be passionate. We can't be angry." And I said, "We can't be like Hitler." And I had not mentioned Hitler up to that point in the speech, but I was told you have to have a strong example, a strong negative example in your speech. So it was. It was a train wreck. Thankfully, it wasn't practice. When I finally got to impromptu competitions, I approached it, I think, a bit more methodically, and it paid off better. That's good. I, I think my first impromptu was at a tournament, and um, I'll never forget the very first time I did it. They uh, they gave me the quotation. I can't even remember what the quotation was, and I had a note card. And after the two minutes of prep, I knew you, you had to take two minutes of prep and speak for about five, and took my two minutes of prep. And they said, okay, that's two minutes. And I looked down at my card and I had the Roman numeral one on there. That's all I had. I was still trying to figure out what to do with my intro. I had no training. And I was just like, this is a mess. I just, I can't do this. I don't even know what to say right now. I don't even think I understood what the quotation was trying to say. But uh, this is about you, not me. So let's get into you. So you do parliamentary. And then, uh, and then what, what happens after that? So then it's impromptu, and then it's spar. And my first championship is in spontaneous argumentation. It's different to the spar that's done at a lot of middle school tournaments now. It's a minute of prep, a minute for the AF, minute for the NAG, three minutes cross X, then NAG, then AF, and very silly, easy topics. And I did well in it. I was fluent. I was confident. I was willing to be funny and take risks. And judges so like this is like lightning fast debate. debate, like one minute speeches, basically. Yeah, it's soundbite debate, which is closest mm -hmm. to what I was interested in, which is the presidential campaign element of debate. You know, at the time, I had paid more attention, I think, than many eight-year-olds did to the Bush v. Gore contest, and then again to Bush v. Kerry. And I was fascinated about turns of phrase and mm -hmm. one-liners that stuck through the media cycle. And I remember my dad talked to me about Howard Dean and how his one terrible moment when he's getting really passionate about all of the Florida. states he's going to win. We're going to go to North Dakota and South Dakota, then we're going to win back the White House. And that one yeah. moment, which seems so benign, in a modern political sense, really sunk his campaign. So I focused right. on how can you communicate really effectively or how can you blow it in the span of one sentence? If that yell was, it's so iconic. It rings in my ears all the time that and it was just crazed. <laughs> and I think, yeah, you're right. It was a turning point for his campaign. Um, and so that really, you feel like that kind of funneled your uh, ability and your, like, I guess your focus and drive in SPAR. Yes. And then once I had that confidence of the championship, I was like, I think I could do better in impromptu. I can speak fluently for one minute. I'll bet I could go for five. And then I realized what impromptu was, which to me was an opportunity to share a bunch of small stories. And I love small stories. I obsess over them. You know, I really love musical theater and I love summarizing it to a captive audience. Like that's a dream come true. And then to go into other things, right, to talk about presidential trivia, to talk about great, uh, great explorers throughout history, to talk about the fables and folktales that I grew up with. It was just a remarkable opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. And in particular, because I was obsessed at the time with whose line is it anyway, the improv show, I had a different conceptual understanding of it. I think that I sacrificed structure for a silliness that many judges found endearing. And the end of my first full year doing impromptu, my junior year, I was third in California. And the next year, I won the state championship. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with the approach of, look, all of this structural stuff, you know, whatever. They, they look to see if there's a five-paragraph essay. People want to have fun. Right. Judges want to have fun. There, there is a bias towards someone who is engaging 
and appears to really enjoy what they're talking about. And for a while, I tried to coach from that philosophy as well. It was let's optimize engagement. And what I realized is that, you know, you have to meet the students where they are. And some students need much stronger structural support down to every 10 seconds. What are they supposed to do when they're impromptu, their spar, their oratory, their HI? And so throughout the decade after graduating, I've become a very, very systematized coach. But that was not at all how I competed. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, this is this little nugget that we're talking about right now is exactly the kind of um, the uh, the layers of onion I like to peel back with you because when I've talked to you, I, I found that you've had deep thought about how to coach, and um, you're also one of the few people I would put into the camp of was a good competitor and also is a good coach um, because I find that and, and I'm not trying to speak ill about any one particular person, but overwhelmingly. A lot of people who were very successful as competitors, I think there's a little bit of a narcissism that, that you need to have. But as a coach, you need to have this kind of empathy for others that that kind of almost counters that. And you're someone who I think does a really great job of, of being a great speaker, but also understanding where other people are at. And exactly what you just said, I think, is um, is what makes you a strong coach. The ability to understand, well, what worked for me won't necessarily work for you. You know, this student needs a little bit more coaching. This student needs a little bit more, um, you know, they need to understand structure because maybe they're not winning the championship, but they they need to understand what structure is in the future for their papers in history or English or something like that. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I, I get exactly what you mean. I think that speech and debate is at its core incredibly norms oriented more than it is rules oriented. You yeah, know, I would agree everything with that. that we do in POI, for instance, is not obvious by reading the judging instructions for POI, but yet mm -hmm. on the national circuit, everybody in semifinals will be approaching it basically the same way. They're all playing in the same ballpark. And that's why I think for many people, speech feels like inside baseball, where maybe a degree of charisma can get by on a local level or on a undergraduate or like, just like a younger level. Um, but the deeper you get into the activity, the more solidified a whole lot of coaches have their opinions about like, this is what speech and debate is supposed to look like. And if you don't look like this, it is much harder to earn my one, which I think disproportionately disadvantages teams and don't have access to that sort of like very norms-based coaching, which tends to be marginalized communities with less money to afford those kind of coaches. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely true. And I think, you know, being able to travel more gets you exposure to some of those those kinds of speeches and, and understanding what those norms are. And they they start to differ as you progress throughout the season. You know, things happen and speeches make splashes in certain communities and that starts to shape those norms and they start to change over time so it's 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 always changing and and the the direction of which way you take your piece is reflective of what the community kind of wants so to speak yes undoubtedly i mean when you look towards hi high school national final rounds the kind of humor that was acceptable a decade ago would be seen as incredibly offensive in a modern context. Right. And that isn't to, to morally malign the individuals who were performing in those days. I think that they were working with what they had. And I don't think they meant harm by their sense of humor. But I think that what is now dubbed, say, a microaggression, and perhaps a very good reason, because it makes a lot of groups feel uncomfortable and that they're not equal participants in the speech and debate space, that was the norm in terms of humor in these HI finals and some OO and duo finals just a decade ago. I mean, it's it's almost mind-boggling when you see 
a fantastic, fantastic performance that made the final round in 2006. I mean, technically flawless, but it deeply relies on a Caucasian kid making fun of a stereotypical East Asian voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And it's, you just wouldn't see that stuff fly. Right. Not today. Well, let's get back to your speech and your um, your journey. So you said the first event that you won a championship with with was Spar. Was that in um, that was in California? You said a championship. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, that wasn't a, a state level championship. That was just my first first place trophy. All right, and that was your first first place. Was there? Yeah. Oh, what a place to get first place. Um, what a first first place to get. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. So your this is what your junior year that you uh, that you win spar. Yeah, at the league level, and then uh, go on to compete. And we win parley at league, and uh, then it's impromptu. And then I think I wasn't really interested in pursuing a whole lot of other events because I was comfortable in this niche limited prep wheelhouse mm-hmm. until I found some bridge events. There was a now discontinued tournament at Sherman Oak Center for Red Studies in Tarzana called spat and squeak which is where you would just do silly events at the end of the year and they had events like impromptu eulogy team spar character spar and i competed in those events and i won the top speaker award which was called the horse's ass award for like the overall funniest most engaging competitor and <laughs> i loved it you know i felt on top of the world and you talked about kind of the ego that's being developed as a competitor and i think that that's when i strongly started getting that sense of like oh i know how to do this i'm really good at this where when you look like i had never been a national i didn't know about nationals i hadn't won state like i didn't know any of this stuff and i hear i really thought i was hot stuff in speech and debate and uh i think that when I, when I reflect back on it, I think a lot about ranking systems in speech. This is sort of a tangent, but I think about like the degree to which we ought to preserve a lot of the competitive elements of speech that engage students and want to push them mm-hmm. while not engendering the same sort of stratification and ego that can also develop in young people that certainly developed in me in speech. You know, well, I, I what wonder do you mean if, by that? Explain that just a little bit more. So there's more and more, I think, a growing recognition that people who are seen as good at debate or good at speech develop a sense of institutional privilege that can grant them access to maybe being a coach at some of the top speech and debate camps, maybe getting jobs right out of college or Mm -hmm. or high school, whether or not they have any training in pedagogy. And it is no reflection as to their own sense of personal ethics, right? Being good at debate doesn't mean that you are a good person. And I think that there's often a conflation of that for a lot of people because debate becomes their life throughout a yes. lot of high school. Sometimes I don't, I can't really speak to the college circuit because I did mock trial, not debate when I was uh, in college. But it really becomes their life. So the people who win all of the time, they're role models, they're looked up to, and which means that their vices. And I think that high schoolers know what high schoolers do more than adults do. But I think their vices are often either tolerated or excused by many in those communities. And I don't think they should be. That isn't to say that I was like this this awful, awful human being in high school. I think I could have been better, but I don't think mm-hmm. I was, you know, doing anything terrible. But I still wish that there was more of an emphasis, less less emphasis on trophies and more emphasis on community building. And I think that some of the tournaments that have certain cutoffs where it's like, okay, everybody above this is gold. Everybody above this is silver. Everybody here is bronze. 
maybe something like that that doesn't necessarily name like this is the first place. I, I think I might prefer those from a pedagogical standpoint. Do you think, though, and I'm not sure I disagree or agree with what you just said, but I, I'm I wonder how that would go for student interactment. I mean, I think I, I think a lot of students want to interact with these tournaments they want to go to tournaments that want to participate because of the competitive element because they they want a first place and a lot of times i've seen in gold tournaments gold silver bronze they know who the top scoring gold person is you know they, they kind of work it out in their minds and they may not necessarily do that for second or third or fourth or whatever but they they know because they're involved in all this they're going well who was it and they go look it up do you know what i mean yeah, I know what you mean. And I think that that level of competition is inevitable. And I think people who go over statistics and they really want like that's that's also fine. You can't stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. But I think that every system is perfectly set up to get the results that it does. That's one of the tenets of organizational science. So if you see a system that is producing really hyper competitive people who often get burnt out on it and a system that often breeds toxicity or at least burnout in those who've been in it for a really, really long time. I think there's something else that we can do. Um, mm -hmm. Take, for example, collegiate mock trial, right? Collegiate mock trial does name who's the first place overall team and everything like that. Um, however, they also have additional awards that are specifically there for community building purposes. For instance, they have the spirit of AMTA. AMTA is the mock, American Mock Trial Association that is voted on by your peers as you were the most ethical, fair playing, nice team to compete with. And that's a valued award that that people love and they bring back to their schools and they get more funding as a result of it. And I think that the more we have those sort of, um, yeah, those sort of incentives and awards, then we end up seeing results that come of it. Yeah. And I, I like what you just said, which is that that prize is valued. I, I mean, I've been to tournaments that have a similar, um, a similar kind of award. And I think that's important so that, I mean, I think at the college level, there is a, there's a kind of understanding, like if you protest something, which protests never happen at the college level, but if you do protest, it's kind of understood that once someone makes their decision, that's kind of it. And you take it and you go, okay, well, thank you for looking into it. And it's just this kind of constant, like, let's smile and be nice and, and let's be on our best behavior. And then you go behind closed doors and then you scream and shout and do whatever you need to do. But at the high school level, I don't find that to necessarily be the case. I think a lot of times at the high school level, there's a lot more protests. There's a lot more fighting with the ombudsman about their protest decision. And it's a lot more aggressive, I think. Um, and, and I think if our coaches are doing that and that, trickles down to the the approach that a lot of the participants at the high school level have i, I don't I, I think they're going to mirror that same behavior that their coaches are having yeah no I, I fully agree i think that going back to the previous observation about how some of the top competitors are role models certainly the top coaches are role models for the other coaches right. yes and that means that anything that a top program does will be scrutinized and either critiqued copied or both so, for example, when a top program has a habit of reusing speeches year to year, that is the signal that other programs should also reuse their speeches year to year. Right. Um, yeah. When a top program engages in a lot of post-rounding, in debate rounds, that indicates, okay, post-rounding is good. That's how you become the best. Now, that's not a commentary on whether post-rounding is good or not. I think a lot of things are contextual. But the point is that like, a whole lot of these norms are shaped by what appears to win. And whenever a new norm is shaped, it is almost always by a team or individual who has shifted the Overton window in some way and they're being rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, this is, uh, it's the, the long-term trends of forensics and what we're describing. And, and I guess it's not even really germane to just, uh, forensics. I think that maybe it's just human beings in any, you know, if it's, you were talking about baseball earlier, I'm sure the same thing happens in baseball. You know, the same coaching styles probably get copied and applied and, and batting styles and, and the game changes. And I guess any sort of competitive field, any sport for lack of a better word, has those same kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but it's, it's, I guess, just unique to us because we see those so much on a weekly basis. Every weekend, you know, you go to, you go to a tournament, you see these new behaviors that start to emerge where coaches are doing some behavior that are either respectable or just respective to the activity. And, uh, and it's shaping things, you know, and I think we got to consider that even these small moments that we might have that we think are inconsequential are actually starting to shape the community at large. Yeah, I agree. So let's get back to you. So we're now in what your senior year you're doing speech. Yes. You you said you're still doing the same kind of events you're doing impromptu and you said you're still doing parley at this point. Uh, yeah, doing impromptu, doing parley. And, um, I pick up an HI and I stay with spar and I do Congress as well. Mm -hmm. And I should have mentioned, I did Congress. I dabbled in it before, but it wasn't like a big thing. I'm doing it more and more now. And, uh, I'm getting involved in more national circuit tournaments. That is to say, I'm going to places like Berkeley, the now, uh, famous in SoCal, uh, Cal Lutheran tournament. I was there for the first year of it. Um, my partner and I, I had a hybrid team with a, a fantastic debater, intellectual, great guy who, uh, just graduated Georgetown law a little while ago. Um, we're a hybrid team and we're invited to the parliamentary debate tournament of champions together. This is a three person uh, parley. Is that right? <laughs> I know this is a uh, two person parley. So okay. It is with a lot of tournaments. It's with uh, a good friend of mine at my school. But for some of these invitationals, I do this hybrid team thing. Okay, gotcha. And um, we, we engage in that. And then, uh, yeah, that's how a lot of the senior year goes. Um, we go to state in parley and impromptu. I win impromptu, and we get sixth in parley. We make quarters. That's nice. That's I mean, that's fantastic. And then out of all of those events that you, you just rattled off, uh, HI, impromptu, uh, Congress, parley, all of them, if you had to say, which one was your favorite of those events? I mean, SPAR is the most fun to do. Hmm. I think every, any iteration is SPAR, whether it's the Stanford Tournament SPAR, which has two minutes of speaking time and five minutes of cross-ex with the audience, or it's the kind of SPAR that I see more recently where it's like a give to two-minute speech, then you're cross-exed in a one-directional cross-ex, or it's the one that I mentioned before with like the one-minute speaking time. Like SPAR is so much fun. Um, it is a blast to do. It's entertaining. It's witty. It's interesting. It reminds me of a small version of the uh, intelligence squared debates and the monk debates, which are getting professionals together to talk about these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, if not that, impromptu. I mean, impromptu is the event that I think my students have had the most success in, that I have coached the most, that I think I've been involved in the curriculum development of at the high school level at the most different uh, most institutions i really like impromptu it's a very very valuable category that makes me happy every time i demonstrate it or see a student succeed in it let me ask you a question is there an event that you don't like i have one there's one event that i really don't like and it's kind of we see it pretty common i'm curious if there's an event that you don't particularly like this is a cop-out, but I think it's any event that is poorly defined. So, for example, huh. at the collegiate level, we know what a speech to entertain is. Yeah. We know what an after-dinner speaking is. But for the life of me, I don't understand some of these tournaments at the middle and high school level that will have oratory and call it that. 
and yeah. also have a after dinner speaking category. And it's like, okay, so I just made my oratory a little funnier. Like, what's the difference here? You know, right, like right. I, I think those really drive me up the wall because they're very difficult to coach for. I, the one that kills me is declamation, um, oratorical interpret, whatever you're going to call it. I, I find it. I find that most of the time, the speeches that are chosen, this, this is where somebody takes a, a speech that was given perhaps, uh, I mean, I'll say famous speech. It doesn't have to be famous necessarily, but uh, I Have a Dream or the Gettysburg Address we see quite a bit. And then they perform that speech. And I, I find it frustrating just because the speeches that are usually chosen are usually kind of uninspired speeches. They usually just kind of go to TED Talk. Uh, the students do. They go to TED Talks and find a you know the most recent speech that pops up and they'll just go okay i'll just do this it's not usually uh oh i really want to do this speech i want to perform this and i think it could actually be swallowed up by other events you know i think it could kind of be merged into um other either into a poi or into an hi or into a di there's other if you've got a really good speech you could fit that same that same thing into other events I don't know. It's, it's always bothered me that event. I agree with you. I think that I really like declamation as an event for student engagement purposes. I think mm. that it's easy for students to conceptualize and get into. But I think that it's an event that maybe ought to be reserved for novices or second year competitors. And that's right. what you see at the Catholic National Championship. I think that. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Freshmen and sophomores—they're the only ones that can do deck there. Huh. Yeah, I, I can. I can get around that because I understand it. It is really easy to explain it to somebody. You just say. Hey, you've seen somebody give a speech before. You're going to do that same speech. I mean, it's yeah, um, it's, it's two easy. sentences, and, that, and we got it. Um, for for a lot of these events, I mean, the priority should be how do you get the most students to do it, and how do you ensure that they're learning life lessons beyond the immediate trophy? Because mm-hmm. I think that speech gets way too insular. And that's part of the norms I was talking about, where a bunch of individuals who have developed specialized skills want to be fairly compensated for them and also want to spread awareness of them because they enjoy teaching and spreading what they've learned. Mm-hmm. But you end up now, you know, having like when you just look at the rules of a thing, anybody could do it. But to succeed in it, you have to have all of the specialized training in the thing, which right. means there's a barrier to entry for a lot of schools. Like even if I'm a very, very good public speaker, if I'm not aware of the norms of oratory, I might come into oratory from the perspective of like a TED talk and the way that they format their speeches, which is close, but it's not really the same structure as many winning oratories are. Right. At which point I may drop in semis or not break, or I may get fourth in finals, but not know why. And that can be a barrier to my continued retention in the event and the activity. And speech is not close to the national exposure level of something like spelling bee, you know? Right, right, like, right. I think that we need to get there and more and more coaches should be pushing us to get there. Um, and that is one of the difficult things because people like it's difficult because there's a lack of money in a lot of speech leagues. You know, they, they don't have the infrastructural support to build it out and support a bunch of schools. Um, they might not even have the rooms if their tournaments get too big because they just don't have like on one middle school campus enough to handle all the potential schools in the area who might come. But I would really, really like to see a communal push towards that. How can we get the most people doing forensics and having an uplifting time in forensics? I think there's a fear of copyright issue infringement too. Like, uh, you know, I think I know that the, at the college level, they've refrained for the longest time uh, of recording interps because they're so afraid that someone is going to take those videos and put them up online and then there'd be this big lawsuit, even though it's totally for educational purposes and that skirts around the, the whole copyright issue anyway. But I think there's 
that that you would have to contend with to get on that national stage and and to be as well known as the spelling bee you would have to kind of deal with that um you certainly wouldn't have to for something like impromptu or for you know oratory or informative speech or whatever it is that you want to do that you've written or you're you know a limited prep that you're making up on the spot but if it's an interpret i think you have your hands full with i think fear of just oh we we might upset some authors or something like that and i agree that, with you i that think that a- at the very least we can show oratory we can show info right. we can right. show all those events and then i think the speech community just needs to win one big lawsuit on the educational stuff i don't even think those lawsuits are happening i mean uh, it, there's I mean, I came up through the cinema world and there was a lot of discussion about can you make a student film based off of existing literature? Um, And famously, Stephen King allows any students to use his work. You could if you're a student at a school and you make a student film, you can do your version of of The Shining and he charges one dollar. So you pay him the one dollar. Um, just to say that you've got the, the fees and he grants it to everybody and you can make your version of it. Um, and I think there just needs to be this kind of understanding that that's the approach with performance of literature too. And, you know, just accept, hey, look, this is for educational benefit. And that's kind of, um, you know, there's never been a lawsuit for student films. And I don't think that there would be a lawsuit in this instance. Either. There's no real money gained. Yeah, I wonder. I I really do wonder because I've heard this discussion crop up before and it may be that there's stuff in the background that's happening. You know, I don't want to I don't know what the NSDA is doing. I don't know what other bodies are trying to do, but I know that people are having the conversations about going bigger. And that that concern that you just mentioned is something that's being addressed somehow. I just don't know how. Yeah, I think it's just fear. It's just what we don't. I mean, if if they are wrong, you now have a huge lawsuit on your hands. And it's something that it's going to take years to have to litigate and you know just try to how do you you can have to hire a bunch of lawyers and and go to court and try to defend yourself and that's just years of appeals and everything else that's going to be expensive even if you end up winning it can wind up costing so much money you know it may not be worth it ultimately but yeah it is what it is so okay so we're now back in your senior year and you wind up uh winning first place in impromptu at state is that what you said in sixth place in parley yeah that's right and then did you get on the national stage at that point? Did you go to nationals? What was what was your national uh, career like? I'd love to say there's this uh, brilliant story, but what happened was uh, we did not file the paperwork after qualifying. Oh, no. Um, it was <laughs> for the longest time I sort of like put everything on the institutions at my school. I was like, you know, they all they failed me. They had this. I think that I could have been far more proactive mm. in agitating to make sure that it happened. And Part of it was because I knew there was a timing conflict between my graduation speech and nationals. I, I had won districts in Congress, and I was basically expecting to go, make semis, drop, and then win impromptu. Like, that was my hope. Mm-hmm. But that ended up, you know, not happening. And so until we went to nationals with UCLA mock trial the next year, I kept this like, ah, you know, nationals, are the one that got away. Because the my parley partner who i mentioned was uh, now graduate of georgetown law he got second that year in impromptu and we'd been head to head toe to toe the other whole year and i was like oh you know if he did it you know he's great but i think that i could you know we have the record to deal with it and so that always kind of stuck with me so uh, i it's it's i love the uh the missed opportunities in speech and people like you never really let that totally go but i love that you're also taking 
some responsibility for it, you know, kind of like, ah, I, I could have had a, a hand in that. And that's something that I try to encourage a lot of my high school students. You know, I coach at a, an after school program. And a lot of the high school students create their own clubs at their uh, their respective schools. And I'm constantly kind of ringing that bell to them of like, you, you got to check. You got to make sure that your teachers are entering you in, into this tournament through your school. It's you can't just wait for everybody else to do it for you. You know, and I think it's a that's a real life lesson that you kind of have to learn the hard way sometimes. Yeah. And I certainly did. I think that far too often, um, there is a tendency to look at the individual and describe accountability or blame without considering systemic factors. And so by that, I mean, there are many high schoolers who I know complain about their coaches or complain about their teacher advisors. Be like, you know, they don't care enough or I wish they were more there for me or supported me better. And I'm sure on an individual level, some of these folks could be doing more. But systemically, it is incredibly difficult for a lot of these high school teachers who are given a meager stipend or no stipend to be involved with speech and debate, often with no experience in speech and debate, who are then thrust into this strange world with all of these hard to access norms. Mm -hmm. And then maybe weekend after weekend, they see some of their students who are struggling dealing with teams that have way more privilege and understanding of the norms, and then they're blamed for it. So I've had that conversation a lot with many high school teachers. And oftentimes, because I was the coach who was supporting the more privileged team, I was like, you know, yeah, you know, individually these people should just work harder. But I think even though in some cases that's true, I think that on a huge systemic like state funding level, there need to be shifts. Well, I want to get into that. I'm curious about your high school coaching experience, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about about mock trial. You know, you said you did this in college. Yeah. And tell us about your collegiate mock trial experience. Oh, it changed my life because it went from going from a team that had a history of success. I mean, in the late 90s, Cleveland was a dominant national team coached by the amazing Louis Cardenas, Sarah Rosenberg, who are now with the Democracy Prep Schools. And, you know, they're just like some of the best interp coaches ever in the mm-hmm. activity. Um, and so we were able to see kind of the fading paint on a wall in the drama room that had listed all of their amazing success, just like cranking out these national semifinalist state champions every year. And it was just sort of like a casual thing you did when you were at the school. And so we always had that there's this buried legacy to deal with. But we didn't experience that when we were actually competing in high school. Mm. UCLA mock trial was the opposite. You know, UCLA mock trial had two national championships. The first year I was there, we won our third. And then my senior year, we won our fourth. And they had placed top 10 in the country every single year as a program. Most um, college programs have one team of six to 10 people. We had five different teams. Oh my goodness! Had to make cuts, and so it was, it was absolutely incredible getting involved in that process. Um, I loved UCLA mock trial. Really shaped my love of organizational science, which is the doctorate I'm currently uh, studying for. That mm-hmm. was also my master's. I just, I, I'm so grateful for my experiences in that community. So, can you give us an an overview f- for the people that are? Uh, for you know, and related to speech and debate, and and we've all been involved in forensics on some level, but um, a lot of us aren't familiar with mock trial. What's the process like? I mean, obviously you're role playing as a trial. How is that competitive? How does it work? 
Yeah, so it definitely is role-playing. You're given a bunch of facts. This is your case packet. And the facts include what's the indictment, what are the charges, what are the exhibits, and what are the witness statements. And then you're called on to prepare both a full prosecution and full defense dealing with those case materials. So on a typical tournament, you go prosecution twice and defense twice. And at the local level, that is to say, when you're in middle school or high school, you're not going to national style competitions, you typically have a very short case with only a few witnesses, and you have to go with the same witnesses every round. But the more involved you are at the high school national level or at the collegiate level, then you start seeing like huge cases with hundreds of pages of material and a great amount of complex legal theory you have to parse through Mm. as you're going through this. And the highest level of it is law school. They have this thing called the Top Gun Tournament, where you're given a multi-hundred page case the night before you have to perform it. And all you can rely on is yourself, your second chair, who cannot perform but can go through the material with you, and your coach. That's it. And they invite the top 12 or 16 in the country. And when you see those final rounds, it looks like these people have been performing this case because they're perfectly memorized, perfectly polished. Like they've been doing it for years, but this is like their second or third day performing it. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 those kind of, that kind of limited prep is so impressive and the, the mindset that it takes just to be able to pull that stuff off is I've, I've seen that kind of thing before. I've seen some extemp rounds where I I've had to check the question several times and be like, how are you answering this so perfectly? Cause I, I swear this has got to be an informative speech that you're just kind of shoehorning into this extemp round and it's not like you're how are you doing this so beautifully no note card and everything is so memorized and polished and it this is an amazing i'd love to see that um yeah it's uh, great i'll send you a link i'd love <laughs> to see it um okay so you do this for four years is that right that's right and so you you said that you're that ucla won the your first year and your senior year is that correct yeah that's right and so were you on the team that won or does, does it work that your entire school wins? How, how was the, the championship really decided? Um, it is a championship for the program, but only one specific team gets to be in the final. And yeah, both times I was on that team that was in the final round. My first year, we were against the returning champions from NYU. Mm-hmm. And it was notable because we were UCLA's B team. UCLA's A team had a very difficult time at the national qualifying tournament. They faced some very stiff competition. And they didn't qualify, but we did. And that was a real Cinderella story because we were asked and, you know, there's speculation in all these mock trials forums that are kind of like sports commentary. Like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder if they're going to add on the A team members to this B team. But the head of our program, uh, Gonzalo Frasius, who is an assistant dean, I think, at the Anderson School of Business for UCLA, he said, mm-hmm. we're going to keep the team exactly as it is. We're going to trust in their uh, chemistry and the configuration. And then the team won. And uh, my senior year, I was the last member of that winning team who had not graduated. And so we had a bunch of folks who had not been in the final before. But uh, whereas I was a witness in the first final round, I was an attorney in the second final round. And so I got to experience both ends of that. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, as an, you, you play the role the entire way through. Is that right? Like you, you play the attorney the entire time or witness the entire time? Is that right? Uh, yeah, in a given trial. But theoretically, somebody could be a attorney on the prosecution and witness on defense, for example. I see. Well, that's that's compelling. I don't know enough about mock trial, and uh, I, you've made a good a good pitch. So let's get into post um, 
post bachelor degree anyway you you said you majored what was your major did you say it was poli sci in undergrad and then do you get a job coaching right after that or what what happens how do you start coaching yeah so during high school um you know, I had considered coaching. I was like, I'll bet I could do a great job with this. You know, it was sort of that, that ego of like, you know, I've won a trophy. That means I'm perfectly qualified to teach children how to be better people, which is sort of a silly premise when I reflect back on it. Um, but I was uh, recruited to start a team at Los Angeles CES um, in Westwood. What year is and this? This is 2010, right after I graduated. Okay. And then after a year with LASIS, I was recruited to start another team at Champs. Uh, Charter High School for the Arts, which is in Van Nuys. And I coached at both of those places throughout high school. And then I, I worked for a private coaching firm as well, where you do kind of hourly coaching, which uh, you know maybe some of your listeners are either familiar with or that's what they do right now. Mm-hmm. And after that, because I developed you know a coaching resume throughout that time, I was asked by the person who brought me onto Champs Charter, he was asking me, hey, how would you like to take some teaching certification tests and then to become a teacher at this new school we're starting, Valley International Prep. And I said, you know, that's great. I'll, I'll pass the tests and I'll start that work and uh, I'll start teaching speech and debate. And so I was given some speech and debate courses. After a year of being with them, they changed charter management operators and they uh, worked with the ILEAD school system instead. And uh, at which point I started not only coaching high school, you know, in a class context, but also middle school because ILEAD Encino was the middle school that uh, was a part of the SUJFL. And were, were uh, you teaching only speech and debate? Or were you teaching other course materials like English or anything like that? So the first year it was history. Second year it was drama. And then for all subsequent years, it was just a bunch of speech courses. Ah, okay. Um, and then after being with ILEAD for a few years, um, the organizer started VIP said, we don't want to have a charter management organizer anymore you know let's go our own way and so they started vip basically again but this time as a direct district affiliate charter you know there was no middle manager anymore mm-hmm. and i was with that team for two years and uh, i retired from the team i stepped down found a replacement and i was going to go and work in shanghai in program development for mock trial but then COVID happened so <laughs> <laughs> Instead of doing that, uh, I took a different program development job uh, with Modern Brain, which is you know a, a program some of you folks might be familiar with. I know you are. Some of your listeners may be as well. Yeah. And uh, it's my job now to basically provide program instruction, curriculum development, like big picture coaching stuff in the Studio City to Thousand Oaks area as one of their regional managers. And that's honestly been a fantastic transition for me. Um, I was not at all what I was expecting this time last year or even, you know, six months ago. Mm-hmm. But it has been very, very nice because it's given me uh, some time to to really think about my practice and what we're doing, you know, what, what, what this whole thing is. Because I think when you have the schedule of a uh, public school teacher, in addition to the schedule of a speech and debate coach who is staying after school every single day and is going to tournaments literally every weekend, most of them multi-day tournaments, it can it can really grind on you. And so as awful as COVID-19 has been for the economy, for many, many people's health and livelihoods, um, I'm personally, you know, selfishly grateful for the opportunity I had to kind of reflect on this across the last months. And just to have 
kind of a, a mental break from some of it? Yes, I, I needed it. Um, during this time, I started, because it's getting to the end of my doctoral program. I'm doing an online doctorate at Vanderbilt right now. I mean, it's not even for me to say online. Everything's online. But right. um, the doctorate is an education doctorate. And my capstone project is trying to deal with the intersection of stress and burnout and inequity that we see in speech and debate and proposing very comprehensive solutions on a systematic level. So I've been interviewing a bunch of coaches about it. Um, and you know, every day there is hours and hours of, of conversations. And it's just given me, I think, a much better perspective uh, on this, this very strange niche thing that we're doing, a perspective that I think I wish I had when I began coaching. Can you reveal any sort of preliminary, uh, you know, results or thoughts about that? Like, what what are some of the things that you think might prevent burnout? Um, I think that, once again, going back to the, the old uh, kind of adage that every system gets the results, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it does. Um, I see a lot of coaches feeling incredibly stressed around the same time of the year. I see a lot of students not getting the accommodations that they need or systemic change that they want with regards to, you know, protests that happen at tournaments, issues of student safety, issues of their own burnout and mental health, mainly because the coaches themselves are disproportionately burned out and kind of at their wits end. And I think that the coaches who kind of back off from it and they give less of themselves to the activity are thought of as less than by some of the coaches who are incredibly engaged in the activity. Um, and so the best that we can do as tournament organizers is to really deeply think about, is it better to run six prelims back to back? Or is it better to have three prelims with big breaks in between and multiple judges? You know, is it better to get our judges from everywhere and like, come on, let's get the ballot in, get the ballot in as fast as we can because efficiency really matters? Mm -hmm. Or is it better to have a few more layers of bureaucracy with judge training and implicit bias concerns, but you're also um, checking ballots to ensure they're not saying things that are incendiary or insensitive. You know, these are some of the questions about trade-offs that have emerged, you know, very, very early on into this process. And so I think that's one tidbit that I can bring up right now. You know, one of the things that I've also often thought about um, with my high school experience uh, I, I came from a really competitive and successful high school team and we would go into state tournaments and it was just kind of, um, we were feared and I've reflected back about that team a lot. And I think about how, when I was a freshman, the seniors, the year before had not been, they'd been fairly successful, but it'd been a really small group. And when I was a freshman, I was part of this new wave. There was a new instructor that came in and brought in a lot of people and put in a lot of time. And we all got really, really good. And then by this, my sophomore year, we were all kind of coaching each other. And the coach really could take his foot off the gas. And we were coaching each other to the point where um, by the end of my junior year, that teacher had left, but the success from that team just echoed because there was this internal memory of how to do the whole activity. It almost feels like once you start getting the ball rolling and the students know what to do, if you design it right, then they'll almost coach each other and you have this kind of echo chamber feedback loop where you can kind of pull yourself back and still have a pretty successful program. And I find peer-to-peer -peer coaching to be really strong anyway. Um, 
but I don't know. I, I, what do you think about that? Is that a, a, a possible solution to uh, escaping burnout? I, I think it's part of it because I think obviously peer-to-peer coaching is a really good thing. I think that there are a lot of teams that struggle with it because they might not have the room to give the kids peer-to-peer coaching opportunities. This mm-hmm. is assuming, of course, physical. You know, like at some of my early coaching jobs, we weren't given the honor of, of a room to practice and we were out in the pavilion. And I think that the bigger a program gets, kind of inevitably, the less direct coaching a head coach will do. You know, it is almost impossible on a team of 100 to give each of those kids one hour a week in addition to all of your other work. It's difficult to give them 30 minutes, right. which is why you see uh, then programs are engaged in a whole lot of fundraising. So there's NorCal programs that are really stored and fantastic who bring in a bunch of private coaches all of the time. And the main job of the head coach is to do um, – parent communication and logistics and setting up tournaments and resolving uh, disputes and things like that, um, which is lovely. But that is in many ways a different skill set than the initial let's get good at this activity skills code a lot of people have. And I think that with I would like to see coaches better prepped and maybe they don't get it from their institution, but it's just easy for them to find the appropriate prep to be the best educators they can be early on so that they are able to then be way more effective in their skills coaching. Because if you're the sort of skills coach who can get a a student to win nationals, but as soon as nationals is over, they hate the activity, don't want anything to do with it anymore, then that doesn't help grow the activity. Even though the national championship may have very much benefited that student's life in some sense, might open more career opportunities for them down the road, more coaching opportunities themselves. You know, they put it on the resume forever, perhaps, but like, I would like to see more people fall in love with the activity. And it is difficult for some of these head coaches of big programs to stay in love with the activity when they're just doing a bunch of logistics all the time and they don't have the time for hands-on coaching anymore. You know, I was talking to uh, another coach recently and in light of all of the coronavirus situation that's going on, um, he made the comment that he had been talking to some other coaches that perhaps a lot of college tournaments are going to rethink how speech and debate is even done and perhaps even revert back to the older style that, you know, kind of kicked off in the 1800s of really just having two teams like, you know, uh, UCLA goes to USC, much like you would have a football match and you, you have a debate like our team versus your team and that's it. And there, it's not this open invitation. And I think there is some room to that too, that would help with burnout. Uh, it would help with, this idea of, um, you know, we could reduce the amount of travel that's needed for a lot of, uh, you know, for budgetary and coronavirus concerns, things like that. I thought that was an interesting idea. I'm not sure I totally agree with it, but I thought that was an interesting concept to just rethink how speech and debate is done. What are your thoughts on I that? I agree. I agree. I think that ideating is really key. So there's there's a tenant uh, called design thinking. Um, there's a couple different steps to it. It, it. Like everything, there's different models to it. But the first step is like you empathize. So for the people that you want to impact through this change, what do they really want? What is the core of why they do speech? Or if they don't, what could make them do it? What would make them comfortable do it? Um, uh, to do it? And then you define it. So specifically, what is the best way that we can now define this problem after we've empathized with everybody effectively. And third is we ideate. We create a bunch of ideas for innovative solutions. Everything is on the table. And then we prototype it and we propose what we've thought of and then we test it. And I think that 
there's not nearly enough big picture ideating that happens in speech because the people who've been doing it for a while are really comfortable with how it's done, which means that change is frightening. It means they might lose some power, maybe some sway. Um, you know, to the extent that speech and debate is privatized, it may mean giving up some market influence mm-hmm. to try and do this thing differently. But I think that speech is not big enough that you can say we figured out the formula. It's just not there yet. So I think we still need to like go back to the drawing board and ideate a great deal. Changing the subject a little bit, I want to get back to um, a question that that I'd, I'd like to pick your brain about. Uh, you know, you mentioned Spar as a uh, as one of your favorite events. If someone was to ask you about Spar, if they were to say, "What's something? What's the key to Spar? What's how would you unlock that event for somebody?" If if they kind of knew the basics of the event, they go, "Yeah, I know how to do it," but how do you win at Spar? What would you say? I think that, as with everything, there's no one like silver bullet. I think that there's a bunch of factors. The first factor is fluency. It is very difficult to win in Spar if you are not a clear speaker. Mm-hmm. I think that the second is charisma. I think that you need to be the most likable speaker in the round to win in SPAR. And sometimes that means being calm and pleasant during cross-examination. It may mean having a pleasant AGD to a SPAR or flipping somebody else's AGD in a rebuttal in a humorous way. I think that it also means being really willing to get into the nitty-gritty of examples. A lot of SPAR is super vague. People don't give good warrants. Um, and sometimes it's like you can just call something up by saying that's a logical fallacy. It's an appeal to authority. But I think that the more people can rely on models of debate that require a deep dive into the warrants and the examples, the better debate it is. So oftentimes in SPAR, someone comes up, they've got like three contentions, but maybe only one of those contentions has a good warrant. I'd like to see two contentions with much deeper warranting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's more likely to register with the judges. It's more likely to inspire a greater depth of thought and debate from the students. And it's going to mean that we have more time in the final speech for a degree of easy to understand weighing. I'm not saying like, we are, we are magnitude. It's like, not that. But I think that some degree of argument comparison is good in the spar. And I think that most of the time, argument comparison is just like contradiction. It's like, they say this, but that's not true. Now let me repeat my own point. I'd like less of that. Right. Yeah. I, I, that, that last part of what you said is, I, I'm going to repeat your point, which is don't you don't have to repeat your points you've already made. I find that to be a, a, a common theme throughout most of the spars that I've seen. It's just let me just repeat what I said earlier. Yeah, we <laughs> heard it the first time. Um, I like that. I think that's really strong advice, Ian. That's that's great. Uh, all right. So, Ian, what I want to do now is I want to move into the next portion of this interview. Uh, I have 10 survey questions that we ask every guest who comes on the show. This is what I call the final round. Are you ready? Golly. All right. Question number one. Were you superstitious in speech? Oh, yeah. Uh, Senior year, I had this impromptu journal. (laughs) It was really like ostentatious and floral. And every tournament I brought it to, I won. So I've had an affinity for floral print and floral ties since. (laughs) I love that. So you had like a what's the uh, what's the pattern? The um, oh, it's not what's not floral. What is it called? Like um, paisley kind of or is it more like actual flowers? Um, it's more actual flowers. Like mm. I think that a lot of the shirts are called like printed shirts now. Mm, okay. That's really interesting. Number two, who was the competitor you most admired? Austin Ashford from James Logan. Um, wow. You knew that answer 
just right off the top of your head. Tell me about I, Austin. It's difficult to argue against Austin as a great competitor. There are certainly competitors who have won more national titles. Um, Abigail, for example, from UT Austin comes to mind, who won like everything and finaled in everything over the last few years. She's phenomenal. But Austin Ashford um, has a poi online. So there's a content warning. It is not for, I think, immature audiences. It's called Black Coaches Matter, and it's just about the best thing I've ever seen in speech. It is a speech that combines issues of racism and inequity with issues of mentorship and fatherhood and is incredibly personal. I think it's like it is the point of what interp can be. I, it's a meta commentary on speech. You know, I, I just love it. But also, Ashford, uh, Austin Ashford, he was a um, PF champion in high school, and he was an HI and all of the interps. And then in college, he just like casually got second in impromptu as well. In addition to winning a bunch of interps, like he has it all. And, and now he's doing this like off Broadway one man show, like retelling of the Odyssey. I think he's incredible. Wow. Uh, all right, I'll have to check out some Austin Ashford. All right, question number three. What's the most memorable speech or debate you've seen? Um, there was a legendary spar in my local league. This was back in 2008 or nine on legalizing cannabis. But neither competitor knew what the word cannabis meant. <laughs> but, but they recognized the word can- like, like canine, so they thought it was about dogs and dog rights. And they made a debate about Michael Vick. So I think that was pretty memorable <laughs> that's great uh, do you have any sense of what the judges were you a judge at the time or do you know what no, the I judges thought? um but i mean everyone else in the room i think knew what it was to some degree so like we couldn't stop giggling and the competitors like <laughs> thought they were being funny or what i think they were being funny so they kept leaning into it but i don't think they knew what they were doing as they were leaning into it it was like <laughs> it was a masterpiece it was good <laughs> All right, question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone unfamiliar with it? Um, forensics is an educational competition where you speak spontaneously, debate topics, perform prepared speeches, and it builds the critical thinking, teamwork, and leadership skills to ensure that you'll succeed later on in life. I feel like I'm reading the back of a pamphlet that's like, you know, <laughs> hey, get involved in the speech and debate team. That was perfectly worded. Question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? Um, during the 2016 Republican primaries, everyone's making fun of Jeb Bush. You might know some of those memes where it's mm-hmm. like an electoral map and it shows Jeb Bush with outstretched arms, like Jeb won everything. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a student of mine created an OPP, Original Prose and Poetry, called Bushwhacked. And by the time we had finished writing this speech, it was about Jeb Bush praying to the three ghosts of conservatives past. Um it made it to state, but it was uh, looking back on the humor there. It was a much simpler time, I feel. <laughs> so who were the three ghosts? Um, so the first was uh, <laughs> probably first, I'm, I'm going to guess uh, Lincoln, Roosevelt and Reagan. Uh, so I think the first was Reagan. Um, okay. I'm forgetting the second. The third was uh, <laughs> he prays and George Washington appears and he keeps trying to ask George Washington for his advice. And George Washington is like too obsessed with modern technology. Um, <laughs> and he did this bit where he like went down on the floor and he like rubs it and he's like, this sort of rug, the finest hide I've ever seen. Like, it was, it was good. Uh, all right. Question number six. Has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Yeah, um, 
to answer the question, there's a meme that I saw recently on a subreddit called Wholesome Memes, and it's like, if you look back on who you were and you cringe, then good, that means you've grown. So I would hope that people think about speeches and mm -hmm. arguments that make them change and think of things differently and grow. Um, I think that the speech that emotionally impacted me most profoundly was the national champion from 2015, Dramatic Interp, not a genuine black man. It was a incredibly powerful performance that again touched on issues of identity and mental health and it was you know i i cried a lot uh during that speech and uh, it's something that i note about like most of the times i think that round order doesn't matter in speech and debate mm -hmm. but this is one instance where it did because the person who went after this performance gave a very good di about truman capote but the audience was so emotionally invested in the previous performance that the Capote speaker got sixth. I'm looking back on the speech. I don't think that was the last place performance in the round. It was just like bad timing for him because yeah. that speech was incredible. I think that the speech that wasn't competitive that made me change the most profoundly was probably Dr. Thomas Freeman, uh, who is, he's now deceased, but he lived to be 101 years old. Um, he gave a speech in 2019 high school nationals and he, he was just a living legend. He talked about his experiences teaching Martin Luther King Jr. And he also had taught Denzel Washington. He inspired the great debaters. And he was a man of profound um, pedagogical insight and profound faith. And it was incredibly moving, that speech. You know, one of the things that you just touched on, um, I've only seen a couple of people do really, really well, but I've been in DI rounds where the room gets really uh, dark you know, I, I performed a, a piece, I think my sophomore year in college, that ended on a really very disturbing note and very, you know, a lot of people would be crying and it was not good. It was a very bad, evil kind of vibe. And it made it very difficult, I think, for the next person coming up to begin their piece because it would be like, this is the wrong vibe that I'm trying to go off of. And I noticed um, one time I went to a tournament and there was one coach who did a really exceptional job of always resetting the round and would kind of take that pressure off and put it on himself no matter who was performing and i that was the first time i really understood like what that concept of resetting the round really meant and how to responsibly do that as a judge and that's something i rarely see being done it's usually just okay next you know and, and there's no real mood reset and I think you're right. That can that can tremendously affect some people if the wrong piece is going right before you, you know. And I, I think you're right. Most of the time, it probably doesn't matter. But when it does matter, that can be really devastating. Um, you know? What did the coach do to reset the round? He what he did is he he had like kind of a a joke, and there was a um, an affect and a, and just a a tone, and I can't remember the exact wording of what he said, but the way that he did it it was the first time that I clicked and I understood what he was doing. It was resetting the round every, every speech. And he was doing it before I went up and I, and he did it after I sat down and I, I knew the vibe in the room. No one was looking up. Everyone was looking down at their shoes. And I knew like, I thought I'd bombed it, but I, I mean, I, I picket fenced that round and I was like, Oh, I, I must have actually, I thought people were looking away cause I was so bad and they were going, no, 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 you, you nailed this. And you just, it was like a really evil, dark vibe. And so I, 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 I feel like looking back, he did a really great job of respecting the next person who came up after me because that's a very difficult position for them to be in if it's that dark, you know? Um, yeah. 
and especially if it's a national stage, I don't know really how you do that with you know, 3,000 people sitting behind you. I mean, that's much more difficult to do to be like, okay, next up. You know, that's it, it almost <laughs> kind of takes away some of the, the power from the speech that just performed. But it is something that I think for judges to be thinking about is um, what's the vibe? What's the vibe in the room? And you have to read it too because you play a role in how that next person is going to be brought up. I agree. And I think that, you know, your average parent who is just there to support their kid, mm-hmm. they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of coaches probably don't know what to do. I think that kind of speaks to the idea of we have a time to rethink this and to make it better for students across the board. And questions like these, how do you reset the round? How do you do it in an online format? How do you do it in a, a physical format? Some things of speech and debate, I guess, kind of have to be treated like trade secrets. You know, it, it is not impossible to find just about every last piece of advice on every last category somewhere online. There's a previous speech and debate rostrum where somebody published it. There's websites where, like like Learn Public Forum or Beyond Resolve, where people are going out of their way to release materials that are previously you know behind mm-hmm. a camp paywall and put it out so everybody can see it. And I think that's a good thing. I think more access to speech is a good thing. But I think that whether or not some people have opinions on whether that kind of thing should be released, I think they should. Um, I think everybody should release how can you be the best judge you can be? What are the things that you might experience that you don't expect? Even if every judge does not read it, enough will that it'll make a better vibe for our students. And I I love that word vibe that you use. We just need more of that. Yeah, well, and again, kind of talking about what we were saying before, there's this trickle-down effect of really good judges. I mean, here I am sitting on a podcast, you know, singing the praises of this judge who had over 30 years of experience. You know, this is a very well-known judge. And that Um, that concept, you know, just that little gesture that he did wound up having this effect that it it certainly shaped the way that I behave in rounds and how I judge rounds. And now I'm talking about it. Now that same kind of information is being disseminated to listeners of this podcast and hopefully is popping up in other areas. So it has um, these kind of long reaching arms that you may not necessarily suspect. You know, people do notice that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Question number seven. What did you do with your awards? I gave away all of my speech awards with the exception of, I think, the state champion one. That's in my parents' house gathering dust. And my mock trial awards, I think I think I gave all of them away with the exception of all American awards, which are on my shelf next to uh, kind of coach-related awards and The only coach awards that I've kept for speech are ones that are like, there's a district service award that I have, and there's like a couple coach of a state national stuff, but nothing else. When you say that you gave them away, who did you give them away to? Some of them, um, we used at a camp tournament. It was just like, look, we were going to give some kind of of award to someone. So here, congrats, you won SPAR. Would you like this third place in Congress award? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then others, I, I just, I can't even remember now, so... You know, any students who feel like you have to hold on for your awards forever, it's it's really the memory. You, you don't need the physical talisman there. It's, keep what sparks joy. All right, question number eight. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day life? Impromptu speaking. Speaking fluently in an organized manner. Then I had to untrain myself from doing impromptu because I spoke in an incredibly proper and fluent way in casual conversation. And mm. so any pause or stutter is something that I relearned when I was doing mock trial because some of the judges said, you should care more about being personable than being polished. And I agree with that. I think that 
people only respond to polish up to a certain point before it becomes more intimidating and less welcoming. Yeah, it, it, you can't connect with it. Yeah. There's no reality behind it. I think that you're right. That's interesting. All right, now question number nine. Why didn't you quit? I did, multiple times. <laughs> uh, I, I quit mock trial a semester into it because I was feeling too stressed out. I was asked to come back, so I did. Um, but is that I, quitting? I mean, I guess you quit, but you didn't really quit. Yeah, so if it's why didn't I permanently quit? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I've developed, I've developed a skill that is of value to a niche group of people that I would like to develop in a way that would benefit more people. And I think the longer I do this, the more I see how I could be better at it um, and better to myself when I do it. So the most influential speech that came out of uh, any of my programs to me was a speech that was second in California called the sunk cost fallacy. And the sunk cost fallacy is this cognitive bias where when we start something, we feel the need to complete it. So this speech was like the anti-impromptu because every impromptu is like, this person was so determined and they succeeded. This one's like, don't feel like you need to carry the thing through just because you started it. Mm. And so anytime I do something now, I'm thinking, is this really the sunk cost fallacy at work? Am I sticking with it because I feel like I have to or am I sticking with it because it benefits? And so that's what I try to do more often. Maybe it's not quitting whole hog but it's quitting practices or it's quitting systems that aren't working anymore um, and taking time off, which I think that all coaches need to do. Because if, if you're sacrificing your well-being for the benefit of your students, you're not benefiting your students. You're setting a problematic example for them that may harm them later on. And you may be a suboptimal coach to them in this moment because you're not giving them your best. You know, your best is you when you're also optimizing your well-being. You know, Ian, I got to say, I've, I've interviewed dozens of people and asked them that same question. I think you might have the best answer, which is <laughs> pretty in-depth, but it, you're right. I mean, I, I think most people just kind of say, oh, I did, or I don't know, I just didn't want to give up. And I, I think they're almost kind of tossing that question aside. And I, I really like that answer that you just provided. I think that's there's a lot of truth to it. And Thank um, I think I think we'd all be wise to take that as uh, advice, which leads me into my next question, the best question of all. Question number 10, what was the best speech advice you've ever received? Um, that's tough. I think that there's a primacy and recency effect when I consider this, which is the first and last thing that I've been told are the things that I'll remember best. Mm -hmm. um, and I was given a piece of advice semi-recently, so that's maybe why it stuck with me. But I was talking about burnout with a coach, and the coach shared with me their model of what's wrong with a lot of speech and debate. And they said that a lot of coaches have a Pokemon philosophy of speech and debate. I said, what do you mean? And it's like, well, you start off really loving Pokemon, right? You know, I know that I was six, seven, eight years old and Pokemon was getting big and I loved it. You know, I, I drew my own little comic books that were obviously Pokemon ripoffs. Like I was obsessed, like what would my team be? And all my friends talked about it. But then when you see modern Pokemon, it's like, how can you optimize the stats of your Pokemon team to play competitively and win both the trading card game and this big Pokemon video game national tournament? And we see these Pokemon cheating scandals emerge and we see all this Pokemon stuff happen. It's like, wow, you know, what has become of this land that I love, this idyllic place? And when this coach was talking to me about a Pokemon philosophy of coaching, it's they don't treat their students like individuals with their 
their own needs and, and their own desires and, and everything like that. It's like, I am the trainer. I know best. I know the event you should be. I know your ideal matchup, just like in Pokemon. I know like the best way that you can, uh, that use that, this character, yeah, use this character, use this skill. And I think that, that that's bad. You know, it's something that emerges when an activity is too competitive and when there's not sufficient ethical safeguards and I just love the analogy that they gave because I was reading a philosopher, Nell Noddings, who develops this ethic of care. And they say that in order to adequately care for those around us, we have to be incredibly responsive and incredibly individualized in our approach. There's no one way to appropriately care for your students or to serve their interests. And I think that the more you have the Pokemon philosophy of, I am the trainer, you know, I say go, you go to these tournaments and I optimize, you got to trust me, like the less we're treating our students as the individuals that they are and the more we're failing in that regard. So I think that image is stuck with me really profoundly. That's interesting. I like that. Well, Ian, this was great, man. It was nice to, to get your thoughts. I knew, I said at the beginning of the show, I knew you were going to have some really interesting thoughts and theories about, um, about speech. I find that every time you and I have had a conversation, uh, I, I can't think of a single time that we've had a conversation that you haven't had so said something that I've gone, there's a lot of depth to that. That's a really good idea. I like that. Uh, so I, I'm really happy to sit down and talk with you for a little over an hour and, and get a lot of it. And uh, I'll probably go back and listen to this this podcast episode a few times per year just to remind myself of some of the some of the wise advice you dropped i think you've um you've nailed it in a lot of different ways so uh thanks for coming on the show i appreciate it if people want to try to find you where can they find you do you have an instagram you want to plug or anything like that uh you know i i do have an instagram but i am trying my best to get off social media as much as possible uh, i just read too many studies about how addictive it is and i know that from my own perspective so I, they can they can drop me an email if they have any specific questions and they can send me that email to ian that's i-a-i-n at modern brain spelled exactly like you'd expect dot com um i think that's the best kind of avenue to get in touch all right. And as for us, we are addicted to social media. So if you'd like to find us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle over there is at Forensic Podcast. And we also have a new Patreon page set up for those of you who'd like to help sponsor the show. So go on over to patreon.com slash figure of speech to see all the different donation tiers and access some special Patreon only content over there. Ian, thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Thank you. Bye. So until next round, keep talking. And as Ian Lampert says, don't have a Pokemon philosophy to speech.